Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the GCI Podcast. I'm your host, Anna Amar, and on today's episode, I have the incredible honor of hosting one of GCI's original founders, Eric Jordan. Eric is now the head of global capital markets at Goldman Sachs, so we'll be covering everything from how he started GCI to what his best tips are for leadership and what are the not-so-glamorous parts of his job today. So there's lots to cover, there's lots to talk about. Let's get right into it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, it's incredible that after 25 years, like you said, we can come full circle and have somebody who's had an incredible um, trajectory after GCI come on the show and talk about the history of GCI, talk about their life. And, you know, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am for this podcast. It's very kind of you to say. Um, I'm also very excited about the podcast. Uh, I, I did not know that GCI was still as successful and vibrant as it was. And so to hear that not only does uh, the Georgetown Collegiate Investors still exist, but you guys are sophisticated enough to have not this as a first podcast, but a string of, I, I checked it out on Spotify, um, a string of interesting podcasts and a bunch of great content and a big, well-organized machine that um, is investing and educating around investing is incredibly gratifying for someone who is around at the ground floor. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's so nice. So nice to hear that. So you were one of the original founders of GCI. Like I said, it's incredible to have you here um, because you can tell us a bit more about the history of GCI. So can you tell us the story behind how and why you decided to create an independent student investment fund? So um, I'll admit uh, th th this doesn't speak so well of me, but um, really it's a, it's a bit of a rejection story. It, and, and in fairness, it's also a little bit about the desire to be really involved in something as opposed to you know joining something. And you know, it, it, some folks join things. And you, you go to a couple of meetings, you put on a resume. I wanted to amend my time at Georgetown with some more practical kind of financial experience. And so uh, th those were the two drivers. And very specifically, even before I got to Georgetown, there was a, a, a program at the time, I believe it was called Leadership and Beyond. And I applied to that even before you, you, you had the ability to apply even before you got on campus. And uh, I, I was uh, not accepted. Uh, and then <laughs> when I got on campus um, during a week of organization and club marketing that they did uh, you know, on the square, it was beautiful. And you learned about all these different organizations. I got excited about several of them. And I'm sure some of them are still big organizations today, like the Cork, which ran at the time at least three or four businesses on campus, including a grocery store and a coffee shop. And um, they did moving and book stuff, used books, et cetera. Um, and then also, obviously, the credit union, um, which as someone who works in, in banking, I was allowed with so interesting. And I applied to all of those things as well as a freshman, and I was um, summarily rejected from all of those as well. And I, I did, you know, I wasn't necessarily rejected from everything, but I did, um, I looked into what was also a brand new organization at the time, which was the Student Investment Fund, they called it at the time GUSIF. Um, and this gets kind of to the, the, the part of limited participation, 
they had a huge number of people signed up for it, uh, who I guess assumed that banks and others would be impressed as that was kind of one of their activities at school. But I, at the time, it's a long time ago, I went to one of the meetings and there were a couple things that had concerned me. At the time, they hadn't gotten money yet from the endowment. I believe at some point they did get some, some of them out. So it was more of kind of like a game like you do in a class where people talked about investments and you'd say, uh, if I had a portfolio of X size, I want to go long now or short this now. And you would track returns and you'd look at kind of how you did, maybe you benchmark it to something. I didn't go to that many meetings, so I was an expert. But the thing that struck me as, as something that could be different is, you know, maybe, you know, if you had a conflicting school thing or social thing, maybe the reason why there seemed to be at the time a little bit less involvement was because it wasn't real. And so I, after going to one of these meetings and listening, I, I kind of got this idea that, well, geez, if it meant something to you personally and financially, it, it might make you resist the temptation to prioritize other you know, things before it. It could be you know, something you really spent a lot of time and, and invested in. So uh, I started walking around uh, my dorm. I lived in New South at the time and talking to people who I thought either were in the business school or would ultimately be in the business school or were interested in this sort of stuff. And then just other people who either I knew well enough and did just sort of to start gauging interest. But the one thing that we did at the time that I thought was incredibly important, um, we told people one, uh, we were gonna ask for a minimum investment and the way we sized it was approximate price at the time of a, of a plane ticket home. We thought the sort of commitment we wanted was you'd be willing to like forego a trip home to see friends and family. Um, and the other part, which, you know, couldn't really police, but we wanted people not to invest family money or their parents' money. We really wanted it to be money either they earned or saved themselves. Again, back to this idea that, you know, whether it was at the time, the minimum, I think was either 300 or $500. Again, excuse me, it was 25 years ago, so my memory isn't terrific. Um, but you know, we wanted to make sure that that money was really significant to you. It was this all about the idea of binding the new members to the firm. And like in any sort of partnership where people own different amounts, not surprisingly, the initial um, officer jobs and roles were not, you know, not entirely, but, you know, part of it was, you know, how much money were you personally investing? Like how dedicated were you to this? Were you working a, a second job either on campus or off to keep investing in this new idea? And so, uh, you know, even though it, it, it again doesn't speak particularly well of me, Georgian Collegiate Investors was founded because even though there are always awesome opportunities to do things outside of classes at Georgetown, at least personally, I wasn't invited to any of them as a freshman and thought that, that you know, the campus could use not like a finance club where people talked about ideas, but a real investment club. And that's kind of what it was. It was how the initial um, indenture was drafted. That was, that was the birth. And it was surprising to me, but, you know, we put together a PowerPoint presentation with the, like two or three people immediately like, oh, this is great. I'm in. And there was probably yeah, four or five of us that put together a PowerPoint presentation and started you know, going to different dorms or Village C or Harvin, and we would see who might be interested. We put flyers up um, and we would present to other students to see like who might be interested in starting this with us. And we got some upperclassmen as well. It wasn't just the, the freshmen, even though I was a freshman when I started to um, ask people and uh, gauge interest. So that, 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 that was the very beginning in, 
I guess late 1995, but really, um, you know, early 1996 when we started collecting. Uh, and shockingly enough, it wasn't a tiny amount of money. I want to say we started with in around $25,000 and it quickly grew to 50, I would say even before the end of my freshman year. So looking back, did you think that GCI would last this long? No. Um, and, and I say that not in a patronizing way to the people that came behind us, but um, one, I probably didn't think about it too much. I knew that, uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to necessarily kind of like uh, rent an apartment near campus and make this kind of a business and recruit Georgetown students, you know, once I had left. And, you, you know, I, I didn't necessarily assume that the crop of people that came after us would have the same amount of passion for this. You also have to consider the time. So in the mid and late nineties, you know, up through, you know, what has now been deemed to be the tech bubble, you know, that wasn't a six month period. After the savings and loan crisis and some of the financial tumult in the early nineties, there was a run of a really impressive bull market and stocks were super exciting. Um, there was no guarantee that you know people were going to kind of keep that passion and excitement for equity investing, and and again, uh, you know, I, I graduated at 21 or 22 years old, so I, I know I, I wasn't thinking about uh, you know what would happen 25 years down the road. So, what would you say were the lessons that you learned getting investments for this club and setting it up and doing all the paperwork that's necessary. You know, it's funny that you, you say that. Um, so when I think about what, what, are, what are some of the most important skills you can have, whether it's just in business or in life, the, the thing that still makes me proud, there's lots of great ideas, but figuring out how to persuade others to take their time, listen, consider a new idea, and then ultimately put both their time, which maybe is the most precious, but then also, especially for college students, you know, money that they don't necessarily have behind a new idea, right? That takes a level of persuasion that is one of the more important things you'll ever you know, having the toolkit of skills, you know, you build as a human being. And so I would say, you know, the, the, the first part is persuasion. The second part, and everybody experiences this from college when you're doing group projects through all kinds of things you do in work and in your social life, the grit that it takes to get things to completion is, is the second super important thing, right? So you mentioned, you know, what did it take? I remember borrowing a friend's car and driving into downtown DC to file a bunch of papers and other things to incorporate. Um, you know, and as a matter of fact, interestingly enough, GCI was not the parent company. The parent company was the Collegiate Investors Association, which unfortunately had the acronym CIA in Washington, DC, which wasn't helpful. Um, but uh, the original idea for the Collegiate Investors Association would be that Georgetown would be just the start. And what we'd hoped, and I hope this podcast starts to inspire this if it hasn't already happened, I don't know that it hasn't, but the idea would be that um, this would just be a model and a template we could share with other universities and institutions who had similar like-minded students that wanted to start both investing and learning about investing. And so we originally filed as the Collegiate Investors Association and the, and the first you know, charter, so to speak, was the Georgetown uh, Collegiate Investors. And so to your point, 
finding a law firm that would do some pro bono work because, you know, even the $25,000 we raised, we couldn't spend, you know, you know, these days, I'm sure it would cost $100,000 just to put the whole thing into motion if you hired a, a DC law firm. So finding someone to do some pro bono work to help us with documents, getting it all filed, and kind of moving around DC as a freshman at Georgetown and making sure that we did it and did it correctly. And making sure because it wasn't a, at the time I believe it was called GUSA, it wasn't a GUSA Georgetown affiliated student organization. So working with the university to make sure that they didn't feel like it was in direct competition with GUSA and that they were happy that they had this kind of side institution that was engaging students, all students involved. Um, was another piece of it. And so, you know, those two things, the, the ability to persuade others to get involved in something you're interested and passionate about, and the ability to see something to its end when it's not necessarily so easy. And, you know, the second one is getting harder. Because, you know, if you go back 25 years, a lot of us are used to kind of inconvenient things, right? Uh, you decide you want to take up tennis, you actually have to drive to a local store. We're not yet in the world of, you know, grab your phone with some total human knowledge on it, uh, tell your phone effectively that you need a, a tennis uh, racket and whatever other equipment necessary and have it, you know, at your doorstep same day or next day. You know, pe people of that vintage were, were a little bit more used to all of the hoops that one needs to jump through to start an organization like this. Um, and so, you know, if, if, you, if you take anything away from what's needed for that sort of innovation, you know, these days, I think a skill people want to continue to hone is the grit it takes to, to see things to completion. So you mentioned that you had to persuade all of these students, you had to persuade the university, you have to persuade the law firms to help you. Um, what would be your best advice in terms of persuasion? What was the most effective tactic that you used? You know, I think it's sincerity. A lot of people think that word persuasion and it, it's immediately associated with, you know, someone that sells a used car that's got problems with it and you're concealing the problems and accentuating the good things about it. When in reality, um, you know, persuasion is often about empathy. It's about you know, your point of view, putting yourself in the shoes of the person you're communicating with, thinking about what would be useful and interesting to them, and making sure that at both a structure and pace, you can convey ideas so that they keep interest and learn from what it is you're trying to convey. Right? The common issues we have when we try to persuade others, especially when we're excited, will immediately launch in to whatever it is that we're excited about. And oftentimes the listener's not even exactly sure what we're saying. Starting with the person, like if I approach someone who, you know, like me, wasn't yet affiliated with any organization outside of kind of their school pursuit, you know, starting not with, hey, can I get some money so that, you know, you can be part of this thing and we can make it big enough for it to have critical mass. That would be me taking what I think I need to get the Georgetown Collegiate Investors up and trying to just, you know, push you into doing it. Starting from the start, asking, you know, Anna, do you agree that a, an activity outside of your school pursuits that would teach you about, you know, finance and let you, you know, potentially invest some of your money, potentially make a return? Like, was it, is that something that would be of interest to you? Do you think it might help you, you know, with 
after Georgetown jobs and pursuits that you're interested in, asking you questions and having you be, you know, that, that's why I, I like to say, you know, Georgetown Collegiate Investors was in fact founded by a group of people, right? It wasn't one person who invested a lot of money and over, over time hired people. It was an amalgamation of people that all agreed that this new activity was needed on campus and would be value-add. And so approaching people, figuring out what would be useful to them, having them see the sincerity of your excitement and how it solved you know, challenges or problems that you have ultimately does the persuading. That's some very good advice. A little bit difficult you know, to, get, to not get carried away and have the person lose all, uh, all sense of what you're saying, especially when you're so passionate about an idea. That's where preparation comes in too, I, I should have mentioned that. You only get one opportunity with somebody. And for, you, you come up to a, an acquaintance, someone maybe, especially as a freshman, I'd only spent a couple hours with before. I knew that if I was gonna approach them about becoming part of Georgetown Collegiate Investors, it would be very important that I, I might only get a couple minutes, I better get my best couple minutes out first. I better ask the right probing questions. I better see if they've got that kind of common interest right up front. And so I prepared for every one of those conversations. So I was thinking of structuring this interview just chronologically. So now we move on to your time at Georgetown. Which major did you pursue at Georgetown? So I was finance and economics. So I guess I double major. Would you say that nowadays, because you're very close to the current investment banking trends, what advice would you give to students that are still deciding on their major? Is it better to have a practical degree or one that leans towards the liberal arts? That's an excellent question. We've been talking about this at Goldman for many years now, and there's two pieces to it. The first is when you do get some amount of background before interviewing for a summer job, the people that are generally interviewing, especially the people in the first couple of years of their career, will default to the skills they're using every day and ask you about, you know, your, you know, comfortability, how facile are you thinking about the, you know, the following concept. At Goldman, and I know other banks, I think, feel similarly these days, we've been trying to make sure interview questions are less about the, the mechanics of the first couple of years of a career and more about finding people that are particularly thoughtful and dynamic and intelligent and passionate and want a career. So you know, there, there's no doubt there's been a trend to trying to get interviews that are more fulsome than just what goes on in the first couple of years of the finance internship. That said, you know, there's no doubt that there's some amount of benefit for the interviewer to see that one, you've had enough interest that you've taken some number of elective finance classes. And if you haven't taken a bunch of classes that you've showed some kind of interest, because one of those things that you're, you're gauging is, is this person serious about a, a career in finance? And then also because even as, as managers, you know, we try to direct our own interview processes. We don't do every interview ourselves. And since we know at fallback will be questions on discounting cash flows, going to some of the websites that talk about some of the common interview stuff before you get there is always helpful. Even though these days we tell people that we're just as interested and, and, and we don't just tell people we mean it in, in liberal arts students as we are, um, you know, business school folks. 
because you know we found over the years that some of our very best leaders weren't finance and accounting and economics majors. So why did you decide to go into investment banking now that we're speaking about interview processes? Uh, I, I'll, I'll tell the story. It's, it's again, doesn't make me look particularly good, but I think it's helpful for people to hear this. Um, I did want to go to Goldman Sachs right after graduation. I had a professor, Professor Walker at Georgetown, who taught a capital markets class and he would talk about the different financial institutions. And in the mid and late 90s, you know, the, Professor Walker believed very strongly, especially when it came to fixed income, which was at the time what I was more interested in, the, the franchise that was most impressive was Goldman Sachs. So I did, in fact, apply for summer internships there. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was so desperate to get one, I thought it was really clever. During the interview, I told the, interview, the interviewers that I would be willing to do the summer internship for nothing. I thought that was really clever. Like, you know, saving the summer intern, whatever they paid at the time, $8 an hour or whatever it was, was the difference between picking me and the right candidate. Shockingly enough, it wasn't, and I did not get the offer. Um, I also did not get a full-time offer from Goldman Sachs either. That my path was, um, the, the I, I first got, I think it was my sophomore year, or it might even been the end of my freshman year, I got an internship during school and then at the summer with a, a local stockbroker. And I, I liked it, it was interesting. And again, I was kind of entrepreneurially you know, focused and I thought this little shop was, was neat. Maybe one day I would do something like that. Um, probably one of the things that drove me to larger institutions, uh, only three or four months after working there, the, the small brokerage was acquired, which isn't the end of the world. Although within a couple of days, my boss resigned explaining that it had been um, acquired by some a foundation called Lighthouse which uh, he told me was run by Reverend Sung Young Moon of the Moonies, which was uh, at least the United States believed at the time to be a cult. And so I was like, well, maybe it's time to get uh, an internship at uh, an institution people have heard of. So after my experience there, I think my sophomore year, I was able to get a, an internship with Bear Stearns. Um, and uh, Bear Stearns, a great institution at this point, doesn't exist because it was acquired uh, in and around the financial crisis by Chase. But um, it, was a, it was a great opportunity. I was able to, to get experience in equity derivatives, which was super interesting to me. Um, and from there, uh, I got a full-time job because I graduated Georgetown a little early. I got a full-time job. My next job was JP Morgan. And um, I was at JP Morgan, great institution at the time and loved it. And, uh, but um, only a couple of years after being at JP Morgan, it was acquired by Chase as well. It was like, hey, wherever I worked was gonna be acquired by Chase. Now in fairness, Bear Stearns was acquired by Chase um, well, well after I was there. It was independent while I was a summer intern there. Um, but um, uh, I, was, I was at JP Morgan for a couple of years and then it hit the newspaper. I, you know, came to work one day and yeah, people still read newspapers at the time. You brought it to work with you and it was on the cover of the newspaper that the place I worked at was, was being purchased. Um, there was someone that I had worked with at JP Morgan who a couple months earlier, it was actually someone I worked for who went to Goldman. And so I remember, you know, that day calling and saying, you know, does, is Goldman hiring anybody else? My fear being that because these two big institutions, JP Morgan and Chase were merging as someone only a couple of years out of college, I was just starting to get my own responsibilities, getting some client interaction. And I, I thought when these two things collide and there's so many people 
this isn't going to be very good for me. So I, I called a friend that had gone to Goldman and, you know, Goldman had this interesting culture of having you meet 20 some people and it took, you know, months and months, but ultimately I was very fortunate to, to be offered a position. And so even though I think I applied to Goldman no less than three times um, before I ultimately got a job, um, it wasn't, too, you know, I wasn't too, too deep into my career before I started with, uh, with Goldman in 2000. So now that we're, we're into the time of your life when you've entered Goldman Sachs, what was your progression? So um, I, I mentioned that in a, sum, in a summer internship, I was done some equity derivative work and it was fascinating but next to us were the fixed income derivative people. It's just kind of how they had set up their seating chart. And for whatever reason, I was watching that and it seemed more complex. And I don't know, at the time, you know, I wanted to be in the deepest, most complex thing. I'm not exactly sure why we, you know, we can have a conversation about that at a different time. And so um, the next thing that I tried was being an interest rate derivative structure. And so my first roles were helping corporates who wanted to either reduce risk or save money by changing the profile of their interest expense. The simple example would be, at the time they could save significant money if they had issued fixed rate bonds, if they instead paid a lower resettable or variable or what they call floating rate. And you could use what was a relatively new tool at the time, something called a fixed for floating interest rate swap to achieve that. And my job was to structure and price these things when they weren't so ubiquitous and vanilla um, and help corporate treasury staffs understand everything from how to account for them and you know why they were useful. And if they had them and something changed in their business, how you would take them off and what the ramifications of that would be, et cetera. And so I started very focused on interest expense, which you know seems like a, a, a tiny you know, piece of uh, the capital markets. Um, with time, uh, I'm, I'm sure some of the people that are in the business school know that what's very closely linked to interest rates are foreign exchange. That they're, Because of no arbitrage trading that's been going on for decades, they, they very often move together. And so a natural next focus was not just cross-currency swaps for, for interest expense, but foreign exchange itself. And so I spent some time, you know, in, in foreign exchange as well, and really any other derivative or risk um, item for a corporate. I, I did my first decade plus really focused on corporate America. As things progress, um, I, I broadened out a little bit financial institutions, private equity sponsors and other things like that. Also wasn't so myopic to North American corporates at some point it was, you know, all the Americas. Um, and then, because the truth is that they go together, that the next logical pro progression was getting involved with our capital markets and financing businesses. Um, you know, because most, not all, but most, at least for corporate um, activity in that space would come around, you know, choices of how they were financing or refinancing um, or, or taking part in liability management exercises like tenders or consents or exchanges. And so at some point I got involved in how we, you know, finance our clients at Goldman and, and then ultimately uh, started doing that, not just in the Americas, but at a global level. How long did it take you at Goldman before you became the head of global capital markets? Oh, a long time. That job is only, uh, you know, it's not even quite a year old. And um, there were a lot of different kind of intermediate steps. 
the, the great thing about big organizations like Goldman, advising corporations uh, on the best ways to tap the capital markets or protect themselves from risk, those are skills that don't necessarily take two or three decades to build. I've been watching some of our up and coming people with seven, 10, 12 years of experience who really give superlative advice. They understand the fixed income fundamentals of their markets. They understand the equity markets. They understand how everything comes together. They understand investors and their ability to take treasury staff through the different choices and the puts and takes. That's not something that necessarily takes 20, 30, 40 years. But the nice thing about these big organizations, um, it's not just about uh, you know, your interaction with the client because we ourselves are a large organization. In global capital markets, in the investment banking division at Goldman, we, we have you know, hundreds of people. So you know, the nice thing about being in an organization that takes you through these things gradually, you are learning some of the things we talked about, new skills, you know, at the same time, you're learning the people skills that are required to train and recruit and ultimately train people to be trainers and recruiters. You're learning about what it means to run businesses of different scales, because when you're in a very small siloed kind of product business of a certain size, you need some set of skills. As you're in businesses that have multiple products, and require different capital bases, et cetera, you, you take on a whole other set of skills that one needs to learn. And so what's great at organizations like Goldman, they've become pretty expert in bringing people through their careers that way. And in one of your previous answers, you had talked about training the trainees or training trainees to train others, as in you were basically instructing on leadership. Um, what were some of the lessons that you had learned or that you were teaching the people below you um, about leadership and how to be effective leaders? Oh, there, there's a lot. So I'll give you a couple just so we don't put everybody to sleep. <laughs> so to have a, a, an effective and successful organization, you need a good structure. You need a good mission. You need a good purpose. And there's a lot of great stuff that you can find in relatively kind of basic leadership tasks. But the beauty, again, of working in a place like Goldman, especially given its 150 plus year heritage, if you've got the best people and you've got people who have passion and ambition and drive to not just kind of rest at wherever your organization has arrived, but kind of propel it to the next place, that's going to be the key to success. And so the building blocks to any organization is getting the right kind of recruiting down. Who are the people that you want and, and how do you get those people and convince them that this is an exciting career worth having that will build their human capital and they'll, they'll feel good looking back having made these choices. And so, you know, I would say training people on, again, how to use our internal technology models, how to discount cash flows, not the tricky part. Training people how to find the right people to work with, how to find a diverse workforce. And you know, diversity in so many forms. One of the, the, the things about our team that I think is so special, not only are we incredibly diverse from a you know, gender and socioeconomic and you know, where you grew up and, and, and kind of what kind of experience you had perspective, we have a tremendous amount of diversity. We have a tremendous amount of diversity of skills. 
you know, we have some people that are incredibly analytically oriented and are constantly coming up with some new way to solve or think about new problems and opportunities. We have some other people that are tremendous presenters and they're very good from a persuasion perspective. We've got others that are always looking to build and, and innovate some new opportunity um, and, and kind of expand into some new market. And the mix of those people at different levels is incredibly important. But you know, the exciting thing working in a place like Goldman, you're getting you know, people that have already done and accomplished so much. You know, people who made a run for an Olympic medal, people who started a business at age 12, you know, somebody who's a concert pianist on a global scale. Because one of the secrets that we tell people in interviewing, and this gets back to one of the questions about why we're not just looking for business majors, you know, it turns out that people that are good at stuff are just good at stuff, right? It, it, it's not necessarily you just need someone that's good at discounting cash flows. And so one of the questions that, and, you know, I'll give this away, I'm happy to, because it's not something that's easy to study. One of the questions I always ask people, and it's hard, especially when, you know, you're at a point in your life where you've really just been studying, but what are you really best at? What do you do that's differentiated and different? If you, we asked your friends who spent a lot of time with you and you said, hey, what, what is she or he really good at, like different than all the rest of your friends? What would they say? And stories like that often give us an idea of, oh, wow. Like when you hear all of a sudden that someone's come up with a brand new way to cook something or play some game or you know, start some small business in their community or have some sort of community impact on, you know, on a charitable scale. Like you all of a sudden realize, wow, that really is different. And if that person could take all that passion and ambition and do something that wasn't just mimicking something else they saw, but really kind of innovate and make you know, that situation better, they likely have the excellence to help you and your team. So you know, it's funny, I, I often come back to recruiting the right people. But then again, like, like I mentioned to you, there's a lot of things. You need the right structure. You have to give people the right boundaries. They need the right training, et cetera. But you know, finding the right team is a big percentage of, of that winning formula. You just answered actually one of my later questions about what skills do you think have remained important in investment banking? And it's having that passion, having that grit, and just being the best at something because that will likely translate to the skills that you need in investment banking. I was to say, you know, and if you want, right, I'm happy to add a couple. You also want to have a view. What I mean by having a view specifically is when you're asked by a client or somebody more senior at your organization, hey, have you been watching this thing in the market? What do you think is going to happen next? You want to start to cultivate the ability to take the information that you have and tell a story and give an opinion. It's okay to qualify it, especially if you're not expert. It's a good thing to qualify it. But you want to have a view, people want to work with people that seem to have direction and an idea. So I, I would throw that in, like we talked about persuasion, because once you have a view, you can persuade people that view is a valid one. And you know something that maybe is less important than people think, back to why Goldman is recruiting the way we recruit, the technical skills that are critical, because you need them to make sure that when you're in these difficult situations, that you can sanity check answers that the models give. Just because we've built all these great algorithms and models today that do a lot of the manual work we used to do, they're not infallible. And having the technical skills to spot when a model is wrong is, is really important. At the same time, 
what I have found is that five, 10, 15 years into my career, I'm getting further and further away from spending my day trying to figure out, you know, what is the right, you know, what is the right interest rate to discount this particular cash flow with? There are other people at this point who are probably better at it, and I'm spending a little bit less of my time on that. And what would you say are the skills that have faded out in importance? Again, I wouldn't say faded out entirely, but like those technical skills, they're just not as like, look, in the first two, three, four years of your career, you're putting together the numbers so that somebody can make a decision, right? That's often what it is, whether it's internally, is this a good business? Or externally for a client, does it make sense to take one course of action or another? Um, being the best and fastest at running those numbers is really important at the beginning of your career and starts to become less important, you know, towards the back end of your career. But truthfully, it's you know, there's not a lot of stuff other than that that's fading out. What's happening instead is the ability to use all of these other skills we're talking about and balance them and use them all at the same time. Because you know the, the things that will compete for your attention, there's really, you know, it'd be nice if you could prioritize and all these other things have become unimportant, but that's really not the case, right? As things grow, there's just more and more important things to look after and balance. And so other than, you know, kind of day-to-day tasks that I'm not doing anymore, I would say that you're just continually adding tools to the toolbox and you have to keep exercising them because as soon as you stop using them, they're just you know, not as sharp. And apart from naturally distancing, how has your relationship with juniors evolved as you moved up the ladder? So what you realize the first time that you get to work with somebody that is junior to you, maybe two, three years into your career, is you're now, it's again, like one of these school projects, your relationship with this person and the way you work together is absolutely critical right? This is now a teammate. You guys are rowing or something, and this is someone else in your boat rowing. You might be the leader. You might be calling the direction. You might even be rowing the hardest. But if there's a boat next to you and there are two people rowing effectively and you're rowing out of sync with your partner, it's no good, right? So you start your career learning how to, you know, work with and incent people who are newer than you. And the easiest thing to do, and you can do this you know, starting 12, 18 months into your career, what we all need when we start at a new place is we need to learn the jargon, we need to learn the skills, we need to become valuable to the organization. And so what you realize very quickly is balancing the need to get whatever you've been asked to do to the next level of the organization with making sure that you're appropriately training and spending time with the more junior people on your team. So they're getting a good experience and they're rowing in sync with you and they're helping. As that changes through time, right, you're, you're not just maybe directly training, you're training people to train others. The, the relationship with the very beginning rungs of the organization never get less important. Because when you look at the numbers, and this is, I don't think just finance, it's most big institutions, those entry level positions might make up either the majority or at least a very significant number of the ranks of a lot of big organizations. And so, you know, the, the, the newer people never get less important. It's never not a focus. It's just what you're doing. You might not be the person sitting and teaching everyone the new accounting regulation or how to use a new tool, but instead you're thinking about, 
how are we going to make sure people feel engaged during the pandemic? Should we do a Zoom that has like a virtual escape the room on it? How many times a week should we bother this person to see how they're doing locked alone in their apartment? That, that sort of thing replaces the teaching them how to use the new, you know, the newfangled tool or explaining the, you know, the new market phenomena that, that might be new to them. But the importance never wanes again, you know, recruiting the right people and having the right team, biggest part of success. And now that you are in an incredibly senior position, what would you say is something that you notice now when it, if someone's presenting something to you or something that you're reading, what are the things that you notice that you wouldn't notice as a junior? One thing that I do that I don't know that everybody does, but I'll admit that I do it. When someone's presenting orally, I can always tell whether they're reading it or they have taken the time to outline it and they really kind of know the structure of what they're laying out and they can do it in a more natural fashion. Depending on what it is, it's not even necessary, right? Certain things are fine to be read, but you asked me what I notice, and I absolutely notice that. I don't. The other thing I notice, we you know, we talked a little bit about persuasion and, and sincerity, they, and empathy. I always notice, are, you know, have they started from the beginning? Have they given me the listener enough to understand what they're talking about and a reason to want to listen? Absolutely, always notice that. And then because I'm a little bit of a stickler for the art of putting together these types of things, the layout of the argument, the actual structure matters to me as well, right? So you start from the start with a bit of an abstract, right? This is what we're talking about and why. This is my conclusion at the very beginning. This is my thesis so you know, now I'm gonna structure the rest of the conversation and how we arrived you know, at that thesis and making sure that we've got kind of the big points up front and they're supported with things that feel kind of meaty and, and enough to, to, to make the argument persuasive and valuable. I've mentioned this a couple of times before, but you are the head of global capital markets. That is an incredibly impressive title. And that's one that many strive to attain, many are working towards. So I guess I'd like to balance that out by asking you, what is something that is not so glamorous about the job? So not so glamorous, I'll also kind of add also just not fun, you know, to be sincere in persuasion and, and you know, really leading organizations, no matter how small, even if it's again, just the, the person sitting next to you, who just graduated, you graduated 12 months earlier. Most people that do well, love people. And you always want people to do well that work with you. But when you lead large organizations and inevitably there are difficult business decisions, there are people that do very well and there are others that for whatever reason don't take to. Having to be the one to tell somebody, you know, are you sure this is really what you like? You don't, you don't, you don't seem necessarily like you're engaged in that way or you don't seem like you're taking to it in, in, in you know, that sort of fashion. Those conversations aren't fun. Right. Everybody, to your point, everyone loves a business card and a title. There are certainly days that aren't fun um, because it is, you know, our responsibility as fiduciaries to shareholders, you know, Goldman and lots of other large organizations that are public companies. We need to make sure that, you know, our businesses are being run in optimized, efficient fashions. And there are days that making those hard decisions aren't fun um, or glamorous. And to your point, um, there's also just sausage making and blocking and tackling that, that you know, is part of any job. 
right? Uh, it's a lot of fun to be in the boardroom with a client when they're doing something big and transformational and you're helping them finance that acquisition and hedge the risk associated with it. Um, and they're, they're looking to you for advice and it's not just the, you know, the, the C-suite of the organization, but the board as well. It's a tremendous feeling. There are nights where you're, you're putting together the materials that are required to give that advice where you know something's particularly complicated or the math doesn't work the way you thought it was supposed to work and you have to go back through a model. And you know, I, I don't think anyone should be Pollyannish and believe that you know every minute of every day is always going to be the most exciting and the most fulfilling and the most fun. Um, I find though that if you're balanced about it, you know, if you do find something that you love, when you do that kind of evaluation, you'll realize that most of the minutes. Like if you ask me if I like my job most of the time, I really do, right? And even like you take a recreational pursuit, like I also like playing soccer with my friends. I play like in an old man soccer league. Um, not every minute on the soccer pitch is fun, right? When somebody like runs into you and knocks you over and you realize that, oh my God, I think I broke my ankle. That's not fun, but I still play because I love most of the minutes on the field. So one of the things I think people need to be careful about, especially in the very beginnings of the career where you're, you know, the, the velocity at which you learn when you start a new job is stunning. Like you think you're learning a lot at school and you are, and then it just ramps up at a brand new job. Like I used to joke with friends that, you know, my, my first four or five weeks on, in finance, I might've learned like four years of college kind of, kind of velocity. It felt like it was being packed that hard because there's so much jargon and math and different concepts to learn and it all has to happen so quickly. And there are times where you'll start to doubt, like, is this fun? Do I like this? You have to always remember that everything ebbs and flows. You know, the first stressful eight weeks of a job will just be that. And, you know, I wish I, you know, I, I some days I wish I would back to those times because, you know, in the rear view, it was exhilarating and interesting. And I never learned so much all at once. So, you know, I, I, it's a long-winded way of saying, yes, there, not every part of, of any job is glamorous, but I love nearly all the minutes on the pitch. So on the flip side, what's the coolest part about your job? Look, there are a bunch. Uh, like, like I mentioned, when, when you really feel like you're helping an organization do something transformational because you're helping to provide the capital or help them figure out a new unique way to operate in a way they've never operated before, um, like the exhilaration we felt when we started Georgetown Collegiate Investors, you, you, you get that feeling that we're accomplishing something really significant. And like your question, I didn't know whether GCI would be around 25 years later. Some of the stuff you get to work on in big finance, you, you start to feel like, wow, you're, you're creating an organization that will be around 100 or hundreds of years later. And that's exhilarating. The other thing that I, I, I'll tell you I love is the access to people that, you know, that are a part of an organization like Goldman, um, and then also external that want to be around that group. So like I, I mentioned to you, one of the greatest parts about being at work, even if we're not in the middle of a client conversation, you're surrounded by such exciting, impressive, ambitious, energetic people that you're always learning something new. They've got a new, better way to vacation or parent their children or some fun recreational thing that they're doing or even mundane things like they do a better job figuring out which healthcare selection they should do. But you're constantly learning and you feel like you're in the middle of, you know, interesting, exciting, positive stuff. And 
you know, I'm also constantly surrounded by some of the most charitable, thoughtful people. And that, you know, especially when I was a little bit more self-involved because I was, you know, teenager, right? Um, like starting to, to be around people that care about their communities and their environments and figuring out how they can be positively impactful in it. Like, wow, wait, wait. So you're telling me as part of my job, I can naturally be around people who are just gonna like help me be a better human being. It, it happens naturally because if you're around people with those ambitions, you're getting all kinds of interesting ideas. So as part of our jobs in the capital markets, starting more than a decade ago, we helped some of the biggest companies in the world issue green bonds or KPI link bonds to their environmental goals. There's all kinds of interesting social and diversity initiatives that are going on now that are you know, getting linked to financing. And then it doesn't necessarily need to be part of the job when you get to be um, you know, part of an organization like ours and you get to be a leader in that organization. You know, years ago, I was asked to be on the board of a really wonderful um, children's organization, Kids in Crisis, here in Connecticut, where I live. And I would have never been asked to be a part of an organization like that, let alone the leadership of an organization like that, if I hadn't been in the orbit of a big financial organization that makes such a positive impact. You know, it's, it's funny, it, it doesn't sell newspapers, so you don't see it a lot in the media, um, but you know, the, the group of people that I work with are amongst the most interesting and charitable people I ever worked with. And I got the, the glimpse of that only a couple months into the job. I told the story to a lot of people, but it changed the way I thought about you know, how I wanted to live my life. There was a guy sitting next to me who was a couple of years older. Like we talked about those training things. I was the more junior analyst and he was a newer associate. And he had a stack of papers on his desk that looked like they had been graded and it looked like math or something. And I'm like, why would anyone have that at work? And he looked too young to have children, which wasn't something I should have been guessing about. But I, I always wondered what those were. And at some point, I got the courage to ask him, you know, what is that stuff on your desk? And he said, um, in the most humble way possible, uh, I'm helping some people with math at, you know, at a local uh, Catholic school. And I said, oh, that's neat. Like, like when you get home, because we were working really long hours. Like when you get home, we do tutor people. And he said, well, kind of, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reviewing progress. And after pulling it out of him, because again, like a tremendous amount of humility, he admitted that he was taking some of the bonus that he was earning in finance and he was sending underprivileged kids to private school in New York City. And because he was so thoughtful, instead of just providing the money, he wanted to see that they were getting that private school education and making the progress and that his investment was actually making a difference. So it wasn't just that I was working with charitable people, but I was working with thoughtful people that wanted to make sure, they understood that just giving the money was only the very beginning, but making sure that they were making a positive impact was what actually mattered. And so whether it's like, because you learned it to take a better vacation or you know raise your, your own family better or learn to just be a better person, these organizations, again, that strive for excellence, I talked about this a little bit earlier in the interview, people that seemingly are good at stuff are just good at stuff. And so my favorite part about the job is at this level of getting to be around people who have reached different levels of success in different organizations, because what you experience and learn is, you know, really, you know, not something that you can value. So we're coming up to the last question of the GCI podcast. Now, 
I explain this to every single one of my guests, the GCI podcast has one single tradition, an easy to maintain responsibility. So the tradition is that at the end of each episode, I ask um, our guest for the most unconventional piece of advice that they would like to pass on for to our listeners. The most unconventional. Okay. Um, I like to make pizza. I like to make pizza because I found that if you don't go through the second amazing step of making your own dough, which is great, but it takes an awful lot of time and you go to your local pizzeria, any place where you like the crust, they will sell you the dough, right? Um, and you can generally, if you already have the dough and a jar of good tomato sauce, and you know whether it's shredded cheese or whatever you wanna put on your pizza, vegetables, whatever else, meats, if you have those things in your refrigerator, this is like a good lunch or dinner that you can make anytime very quickly. You don't have to wait for a delivery, you can do it, you know, on a budget, it's a, it's a great tool. But the most annoying thing about pizza is working the dough. And for years, you watched movies and television, you know, people throwing the dough in the air and spinning. And so the most unconventional advice I could think of, and I'm hoping I'm answering the question correctly because I assumed you wanted something weird and not particularly philosophical. If you're making your own pizza, you do not need to spend a tremendous amount of time with a big roller or throwing dough in there. All you need to do is one, it's helpful to have it at the right temperature. If it's too cold, certainly if it's frozen, it needs to be thawed. If it's too cold, it's hard to work with. So let it get to room temperature. So if you can be thoughtful that you know you're gonna want pizza, leave it out for a little bit. But then, even if it's a little cold, if you stretch the dough with your hands in roughly the shape that you want, and then you put heavy things on it, like full bottles of water or something like that, and leave it for a couple minutes while you prep the rest of your pizza, you don't have to struggle with the dough and toss it in the air and do all that goofy stuff you see on TV. I hope that I'm answering your question the way that you wanted an answer, but that would be a weird, unconventional answer to advice. You know what? I think you're the only guest who has literally answered that question. And because most of the guests, they, they take, you know, like a you're right like a philosophical answer or some piece of career advice or something like that and so I was going in with that mindset as I was listening to your answer and I was thinking okay like making pizza it must be a metaphor for something and at some point there's going to be some link to your career and no it was just advice on how to make a good pizza and I really appreciate that that was the end to the podcast yeah, it's just about pizza but yeah. if you want to tie it back, you always can. Because the truth is this. In every process, in anything you do, it's funny, I tell all my kids this too. Um, everything you do, you do for a reason. And if you're making pizza and you realize, God, I'm struggling with this dough, right? Instead of doing what you think you're supposed to do, because I saw it on TV, you're supposed to fling this thing in the air. And the more I spin it, the more I fling it in the air, the easier it's going to be to work with. If you think it's ridiculous, try something else. Right. That's, you know, if you want to take something away from it, everything can be improved. Try something else. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And I hope our listeners will as well. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for spending the time. And-